Welcome to this podcast on the impact of COVID-19 on the Northern Ireland economy, jointly produced by Queen's University Belfast and Pivotal Public Policy Forum. The podcast is one of a series in which we'll be tapping into the expertise of researchers at Queen's and in the Pivotal Network to set out the ways in which evidence-based ideas and policies can help improve our society, economy and public services. I'm Richard English, Pro Vice-Chancellor for Internationalisation and Engagement at Queen's, and it's a pleasure now to hand over to Anne Watt, Director of Pivotal, to introduce the panel and to chair the discussion. Thank you to Professor Richard English for that introduction to this series of podcasts from Queen's University Belfast and Pivotal about COVID-19 in Northern Ireland. A very warm welcome to those listening. We're glad you're able to join us and we hope you find the conversation interesting and stimulating. In this first podcast in the series about COVID-19 in Northern Ireland, we're going to be talking about the impact of COVID on the Northern Ireland economy. So I'm delighted to be joined today by three economists from Queen's and Ulster University. Welcome to, first of all, Professor John Turner, Professor of Finance and Financial History at Queen's, Director of the Queen's University Centre for Economic History, and former head of Queen's Management School. John has been a Hublon Norman Fellow at the Bank of England and an Alfred D. Chandler Fellow at Harvard Business School. He was elected a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in 2018. Second, welcome to Dr. Graham Brownlow, Senior Lecturer in Economics at Queen's Management School. Since 2012, Graham has been editor and co-editor of Irish Economic and Social History. Graham was the plenary lecturer for the Economic History Society annual conference in 2019. Apart from his research on economic and business history, Graham has published on contemporary topics such as devolution, rebalancing and Brexit. And third, welcome to Dr. Karen Bonner, who is a senior economist at Ulster University Economic Policy Centre and a research associate of the Enterprise Research Centre. Before joining the EPC recently, Karen was a lecturer in entrepreneurship at Queen's. Karen's research interests have a policy focus and lie within the area of entrepreneurship, innovation and small and medium sized enterprise growth. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing their thoughts and to our conversation today. Just to introduce myself, my name is Anne Watt and I'm the director of Pivotal, the new public policy think tank for Northern Ireland. Pivotal aims to increase the use of evidence in policymaking and to involve more people in discussing public policy issues in Northern Ireland. Pivotal is independent of government and of political parties. Although independent, we're pleased to have a partnership with Queen's University and Ulster University. And I'm delighted as part of that, that we're able to do this first joint podcast from Queen's and Pivotal about the economic impact of COVID in Northern Ireland. So right across the world throughout this pandemic, governments have had to make difficult choices about balancing public health concerns with minimising damage to business and livelihoods. For many non-essential businesses, the stay-at-home message meant a lengthy shutdown period. For others, it was a chance to innovate and deliver different products or services where they could. The lockdown period was accompanied by an unprecedented package of financial support from government for business through the furlough scheme, rates, holidays, VAT payment deferrals and various grants and loans. After three months of lockdown, over recent weeks the rules have been eased, allowing businesses to begin to open again in a phased programme depending on the risks involved. Some businesses might be able to bounce back quite quickly, 
In fact, some may have done quite well because of the nature of their business or because they were able to diversify into new products and services. But for many others, the financial damage of three months with no activity and no sales may not be so easy to get over. Plus, of course, the impact of further weeks and months of social distancing into the future. What does all this mean for the Northern Ireland economy? We're going to talk now about the changes COVID has brought to the global economy and what that might mean for Northern Ireland. We'll think about the economy here before COVID and what the structure and health of the economy was before the pandemic struck. Recent official stats showed that GDP in the UK fell by a massive 25% in April and forecasts for the annual fall in GDP in Northern Ireland range from 7.5% to 12.7%. So what do we expect of the much predicted COVID recession and how will it affect Northern Ireland? And importantly, we're going to talk about how the government should respond to COVID with its economic policies. There's been huge government intervention to support businesses for a short, intense period of lockdown. But how should government approach the much longer, challenging period of recovery from the shock of COVID and the longer term impact of living with social distancing and ongoing lower levels of economic activity? So turning now to questions for our panel, I'm going to start with Professor John Turner. John, globally, how do we see COVID-19 impacting on economies across the world? Thank you, Anne. Um, well, as you've already sort of intimated, um, we're looking at a very deep recession uh, globally. And how deep will ultimately depend on whether there's a second or even a third wave of, of COVID-19. And the depth will also depend on how well we get track and trace up and running, whether we get a vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. But the current OECD projections for 2020 uh, suggest that the world economy will contract by about 7.6%. That's assuming uh, that uh, we have a second uh, phase of or second wave of, of, of COVID-19. Uh, countries like Spain, Italy, France, the UK, projections are of 14% contraction in GDP. Uh, country like Australia, so any, anyone under 50 in Australia during their working life has never experienced uh, a recession, a contraction in GDP. Even Australia this year, its GDP is going to contract by a roughly about 6.3%. Uh, and most startling of all is, is China. So uh, for the past 42 years, China's economy has grown by a staggering 9.5% per annum. This year, for the first time in over 40 years, China's economy is going to shrink and the projections are about 3.7% falling in GDP. And of course, this means then for, for the global economy, high unemployment. Uh, and so we're, we're going to see that's particular sectors that we'll maybe come on to later on in discussion, like tourism and travel and leisure, they're going to be decimated. And I suppose then the question that economists have is, how quickly are we going to get back to uh, the levels of growth and economic activity that we saw in, in 2019? Um, Right at the start of the COVID outbreak, people were saying, oh, it's going to be a V-shaped recovery. As soon as the lockdown's over, we're going to recover very quickly. I think the evidence is suggesting that that's not going to happen. And this is going to be a long, slow process back to where we were in, in 2019. Could things get worse? So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pessimist, I think, by, by, by nature. Uh, so could things get worse? And I, I see four headwinds that concern me that could potentially make things worse. So first of all, we've got a geopolitical situation, which isn't great. It wasn't great coming into the COVID situation. So we had the China-US trade wars. I think that's going to kick off even more. I think uh, countries, companies have realized that having their supply chains over-reliant on, on, on China 
creates lots of problems. So I, I can see tensions rising there and then the spillover effects for the rest of the, the global economy. Second thing that I'm worried about are, are emerging markets. So emerging markets are heavily indebted, largely. Uh, they're going to struggle to repay the, those debts to, to economies in the West. And oil prices and off the back of that commodity prices have collapsed. So these economies are dependent on oil and, and commodities. And so again, if we have a, an emerging market crisis, that then has spillover effects for the global economy. And the third thing, and then you know, coming closer to home uh, each time, it, it, it's, it's problems within the EU or tension within the EU. So I remember in the 1990s as a, as a student, uh, when, when, when we were being taught about the European Monetary Union and what was coming down the line, the discussion was all about, well, if you want a monetary union, you also need a fiscal union. And Europe still doesn't have a fiscal union. And that's creating all sorts of tensions uh, and problems within Europe. Now, uh, Europe saw through the sovereign debt crisis, uh, but this is going to really test the euro in particular. Uh, and we've seen it already. So uh, Macron and Merkel came out with their, uh, their, their, their half a billion uh, euro recovery fund. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a small, a small fry, uh, really, in terms of a policy response. But even the pushback against that from the so-called frugal four, the Austria, the Netherlands, the, the Denmarks and Swedes of this world, show that, that there are tensions within Europe. And actually, more worryingly for me, so if we think of the, the sovereign debt crisis, um, you know, countries like Greece, countries like Ireland, countries like Spain, they weren't big players. But the country that's in most trouble in Europe today is Italy, and Italy is a large economy. And Italy's GDP today is now back where it was 20 years ago when the euro started. And so again, the, the tensions within Europe. And finally, uh, and again, people will have seen this play out on their, on their television screens, COVID exposed deep-seated inequalities in our society. It's, uh, it's creating social instability. Uh, and that social instability then has, uh, has potential to grow. Uh, that social instability has the potential then to, to actually make things worse in terms of, of, of the economy. So those are some things that I see in the, the, the distance that, that may actually make things worse for us. So, so, so sorry to be so pessimistic, but that's, that's my take on it, Anne. Thank you, John. So those are the big global trends and the big uh, global, I suppose, uh, perhaps uh, more negative forces that are that are impacting on global trade. Um, what about Northern Ireland? How would you describe, moving on to Graham, how would you describe the Northern Ireland economy before COVID? How was the oh. economy doing? Okay, thanks. Thanks, Anne. Um, I think overall, if you take a bird's eye view of the economy, it was quite mixed even before COVID. Uh, in brief, I would say if we look at areas like productivity and competitiveness, output employment, and the reaction of the economy to the Brexit uh, situation, all three were rather mixed. So if we think about productivity and competitiveness, this has been a very long-standing Achilles heel. In fact, I think it's the Achilles heel of the Northern Irish economy. Uh, and we've had the interaction of Northern Ireland for a very long time being characterised as being a low-skill, low-productivity, low-wage economy. Uh, and that, that was even before COVID. Um, we can talk in more detail later on about the exact performance. But the big pattern in that regard that we really should think about is the fact that the economy is quite fragile, not resilient as a result. So it was always going to be hit harder than the UK average as a, as a result of that. The second big feature about the economy before COVID was 
the balance between consumption, investment, and government spending that's going to shape uh, how the economy reacts to COVID. Well, the fact that to begin with, 75% of the Northern Ireland economy is consumption. So that's much higher than the UK average. So crucially, the shape of the recovery in Northern Ireland is going to be driven by consumption behaviour. But if we think about investment, um, investment has been very mixed in the public and private sector. And there's a big problem, gross domestic capital formation in Northern Ireland. It's much weaker than the UK average. And last but not least, if we think about the fiscal situation, the government spending situation, Northern Ireland is highly reliant on fiscal transfers, roughly about 10 billion a year. But the bigger pattern, the more revealing pattern is Northern Ireland, by the time COVID hit, had been growing more and more dependent. So if I look at uh, the budget deficit of Northern Ireland, essentially, in other words, the fiscal transfer as a share of national income of Northern Ireland. In the mid-1960s, that was 7%. Obviously, in the early 70s, it shot up to 17%. And the 1990 was already 18% by the time of the Good Friday Agreement. But the average between 2000 and 2016 was about 20%. In other words, Northern Ireland was more reliant on fiscal transfer at the time of COVID hitting than it had been even at the time of the worst years of the Troubles in, in some measures. So I think this suggests how precarious uh, the economy of Northern Ireland was before COVID. And that links it into the last feature, I would say. Uh, I think that the economic problems of Northern Ireland are interconnected with social weaknesses of educational underachievement and what I would call the aspiration gap that that uh, affects much of Northern Ireland that reinforces the economy and the political situation. So I think putting it all together, there was a mixed feature, but uh, rather pessimistic overall would be the pattern. Um, that's how I would characterise it. Okay, thank you, Graham. Um, so we got a picture there of an economy that was quite um, weak, or certainly with um, with fragilities, um, no competitiveness, low levels of pro- productivity, lots of low wage, low skill jobs. Um, Karen, from from your area of expertise, what was the the structure of the Northern Ireland economy before COVID um, struck in terms of sectors, types of firms, innovation, and entrepreneurship? Yeah, thank you, Anne. Um, So Northern Ireland is an economy dominated by small firms. So small and medium-sized enterprises comprise about 99% of all firms in the economy. So just less than than 1% of our firms have 250 or more employees. Um, And if we think about the small firms themselves, actually the majority of them are micro enterprises, so have fewer than 10 employees. Um, so and we know that the smallest firms are typically the least resilient. Um, there's also, and if we look at that split in terms of the employment contributions, so about half of all our employment is in small and medium-sized firms, and the other half in this one percent of large firms. And that, again, that that imbalance is a is a worry that you know half of all our employment is in a relatively small number of large firms. Um, If we turn to the sectors, uh, Northern Ireland's a sector-driven economy, so over 80% of all our employment is in services. Um, The two biggest individual sectors in terms of employment would be wholesale and retail and health and social care. And actually together, just those two sectors comprise about one third of all employment. 
Um, and the, the third largest sector then would be manufacturing at just over 10%. Um, now, these represent a higher share than they contribute in terms of the UK economy. Um, we also have, have a sh higher share of employment in agriculture and public administration. So we have higher shares in some of the sectors that aren't the sort of high value added sectors. Um, and if we look at the composition in terms of contribution to output or to GVA, um, the largest contributor there is manufacturing and wholesale and retail. And maybe later on when we discuss the impact of COVID, you know, that becomes important in terms of the impact on the economy. Um, if we move on then thinking about those activities that kind of contribute to economic growth, so entrepreneurship and innovation, Northern Ireland actually doesn't do particularly well in either of those activities in a UK context. Um, so if we think about entrepreneurship, even at its most broadest term in, in terms of um, just number of business starts, um, our rates of business startup are about half those of the UK average. Um, if we also look at the measure of total early stage entrepreneurial activity, which is um, a worldwide measure that the GEM survey collects, again, there's a gap between the level of entrepreneurial activity in Northern Ireland and the UK. So in Northern Ireland, in the last few years, it's been about 6.5% of adults engaged in entrepreneurship. Um, compared to about eight or nine percent in the UK. And that gap has actually been a long standing gap, you know, so even though we have increased our levels of entrepreneurial activity, so has the rate in the UK. So we've consistently um, had this gap. Um, now, if we turn to that's just broad entrepreneurial activity, if we focus on the, the entrepreneurial activity that probably contributes more to the economy, so the high growth type of activity or innovative activity, um, again, the rates of this, even in the UK, are relatively small. So 20% of or less of uh, startup firms are engaged in innovation or engage, have high growth aspirations. So we're talking sort of relatively small numbers in the UK and Northern Ireland would have lower proportions again. Um, and even amongst our established companies, rates of innovation again are also quite low. Um, so the latest innovation survey suggests that only around a third of companies in Northern Ireland are engaged in innovation activities. And that will be quite a broad um, measurement of innovation activity. Um, the UK, interestingly, actually, between the last two surveys, innovation activity across the UK actually fell. Um, so in the UK, it's fallen from about um, almost half down to about 38%. In Northern Ireland, it's fallen from about 38 down to 33 um, So that's a worry, again, that that's going backwards. Um, and then just it's in terms of innovation, if we focus in on R&D specifically, um, in Northern Ireland, we do have um, businesses engaged in R&D, but again, it's quite concentrated. So actually the 10 largest companies in terms of R&D spend actually contribute to a third of the total business expenditure in R&D. So again, you know, there's a worry about, you know, very small numbers of firms being responsible for, for most of the activity. Great, Karen, thank you. That's a really helpful overview of the structure of the economy. So clearly lots of small and medium sized firms and um, employment being focused in particular sectors and then 
I suppose, quite um, discouraging rates of, of innovation, entrepreneurship and R&D. Um, so overall, looking at those three answers, we're getting a picture of a massive economic shock globally, which has a huge impact right now, but it's also going to leave a significant legacy into the future. And for Northern Ireland, we, we, we've talked, you've talked already about the fragility of the Northern Ireland economy and um, perhaps its its weaknesses in terms of not being able to bounce back. Um, I know uh, two of you are economic historians, so just to indulge you slightly with the next couple of questions, um, turning to look at what we can learn about or what we can think about future impact from past economic shocks. Um, John, how is the impact of COVID-19 similar or different to previous economic shocks? Well, I suppose that the go-to example that people have been referring back to is the Spanish flu of, of 1918. Uh, Spanish flu is reckoned to have killed up to about 50 million people globally. Uh, but the studies that have been done looking at the Spanish flu show that it actually had very little effect on, on the economy. And that's, that's, that's a major puzzle because the mortality during the Spanish flu was particularly high for those in their 20s and 30s. This, the Spanish flu was not something that, unlike COVID, so COVID really has, has gone for older people and people with underlying conditions. In uh, the Spanish flu, it was, it was taking out working men and working women in their 20s and, and, and their 30s. Um, so why, why was there such a little effect on the economy? Um, well, there was social distancing. Uh, churches were closed, schools were closed in some places, pubs were closed, large gatherings were, 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 were closed, but work continued. So people still went to work during the Spanish flu. And so that's partly maybe contributing to the fact that the, the economy didn't contract. Uh, the other and probably more important reason is that this was at the tail end of the First World War and the government was still demanding uh, lots of products to help fight the war and, and to wrap up the war and that government demand for, for that for the wartime products kept the kept the economy going so ultimately I, I think this time is different i don't think we have ever seen anything like this in, in history in terms of the the, the, the recession it's, it's different in terms of its causes so we deliberately are putting the economy into life support. We deliberately, if you like, have induced a, a coma in the economy. We are deliberately cutting back on economic activity as part of a deliberate policy response to fight COVID-19. So it's different in terms of causes. It's different in terms of depth. So for the UK, we have GDP estimates going back for centuries. Uh, if, if the UK's GDP contracts by 14%, uh, this year, even if it contracts by 10% this year, this is going to be the worst recession the UK has had in 300 years. So that's that's giving you some historical perspective on it. It's also different in terms of its breadth. Past recessions, past depressions have affected grips of economies. This is affecting every single economy across the globe. And I don't think we've ever seen anything of this uh, magnitude before. So I would say there possibly we could draw parallels with you know, influenza in 1918, but I think this time is different. Okay, thank you, John. So um, you said there um, we've never seen anything like this in economic history in terms of the recession that we're looking at. 
um, the, potentially the worst recession for 300 years and that it's 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 global, it's affecting every country, it's not just particular countries or particular sectors. Um, Graham, what does that mean for the Northern Ireland economy? What do we expect the shape of this recession to be in Northern okay. Ireland? What can we learn from how Northern Ireland has recovered from previous recessions? Okay, well, in terms of uh, the shape of the recovery, uh, obviously this is crystal ball gazing up to a certain extent, but there are some clues. Uh, one is the fragility of Northern Ireland is greater than the rest of the United Kingdom, so the shape could differ, particularly repeating what I said earlier on, consumption accounts for a higher proportion of the economy in Northern Ireland than the rest of the UK. That's the first observation. And the second observation is what we can say about the shape is the shape that it won't be. It won't be a V-shape. Um, and so when we think about the, the actual range of shapes, uh, we're thinking about some of the people talked about the Nike swoosh type shape, where we have a rapid downturn and a more shallow recovery. There's a U-shape. In other words, there's some persistence in the downturn uh, over time. There's an even more pessimistic view of an L-shape where there's initial fall and it really persists for a very long period of time. And last and not least is the W-shape. Uh, I think there's a possibility of the W-shape simply because of the high proportion of consumption in the, the Northern Ireland economy and the risk of a second wave. So the caveats I would have would be that I think that recovery, even if we think recovery is occurring, there's a great danger that the recovery might be a bit of an illusion because the consumption that's stimulating the economy to grow back again and recover is from one-off purchases uh, and might not be sustained. And if there is a second wave, of course, the second shock uh, might uh, damage the economy. So I think in terms of the shape of the recession, uh, I think it's easier to say what shape it won't be. Um, I think one thing that's very clear is the Northern Ireland economy is more fragile than the UK economy as a whole. Um, and so I would be more pessimistic on the Northern Irish recovery shape than uh, the, the UK as a, as a whole. And also bear in mind something to remind ourselves is the output levels in 2019 were still 4% below output levels in 2008. In other words, strictly speaking, the Northern Ireland economy had not recovered uh, in output terms from the, the, the great financial crisis of 2008. And moreover, the Ulster Bank and their figures suggest that Northern Ireland was already in recession early this year. So putting it all together, uh, it does suggest that the Northern Ireland economy lacks bounce back ability and that I'm afraid uh, one has to be very pessimistic in the implications. OK, thank you, Graham. So um, again, uh, a pessimistic picture that we might see an initial bounce back, but that would be driven by... Uh, just initial consumptions or a pent up demand um, and then that could lead on to more of a, a W-shape recession and taking really quite some time to recover. If that's the overall picture of the economy, um, just turning to Karen, which sectors in Northern Ireland have been hardest hit by COVID? Yeah, so I mean the pandemic has affected the whole economy but the impact hasn't been uniform across all sectors. Um, some sectors have been relatively protected where they have been able to move to working from home 
sort of quite seamlessly and I've been able to continue um, operations as sort of relatively normal as they can do. Um, so the sectors that have been most affected are those where working from home just isn't an option or where they're um, in customer facing sectors where social distancing measures have meant that they, the just operations can continue in their current form. So in terms of the evidence on this, we've had some data out in, in terms of the furlough scheme so far um, and the research that's been done on this and that we've done in the EPC. Um, we've looked at this across different sectors. Um, so in terms of the sector most impacted in terms of that furlough scheme, and that gives an indication, you know, where there's a lot of furloughing that the, the sector just hasn't been able to continue um, and has had to temporarily shut down. So the one that's most affected is the hospitality sector. So there about 80% of workers in that sector are on furlough or have been laid off. Um, now, this sector is particularly impacted because um, it's the one which has also been identified as sort of one of the last to reopen simply because of the social distancing. Um, and also this sector will have been impacted by the fact that we've been closed down now for three months and they will have missed a lot of their sort of peak trading um, weekends, such as the bank holiday weekends, the Easter week, and actually also the good weather would typically result in good trading for them. Um, so they've kind of been hit sort of from all sides. Um, another sector which has been particularly impacted again um, in terms of the number of the employees furloughed has been wholesale and retail. So there are about 65,000 employees in Northern Ireland have been furloughed. And if you remember when I was talking earlier about the, the different sectors that contribute most to the economy, actually wholesale and retail was one of the, the largest individual sectors. You know, so that has major implications in terms of how many of those jobs actually get retained in the long term. Um, you know, the furlough schemes due to, to kind of taper out towards autumn. And, you know, there'd be a worry, you know, even if a third of those um, employees didn't, you know, be if those jobs weren't retained, you know, that's still 20,000 employees. So there's a potential um, large impact there. And again, the sector is probably more impacted by the fact, as Graham said, the NI, NI economy is driven by consumer spending. So wholesale and retail could potentially take a big hit there if there are these changes in consumption um, and a, a real drop in demand there. Um, in terms of then of out in, in, in impacts on output, um, other research has suggested that the firms most likely or the sectors most likely to see drops in output, particularly as we move into the second half of 2020, would be the arts sector, construction, manufacturing, and again, hospitality and retail. Um, and construction and manufacturing, you know, that would be another big worry in terms of the impact on the economy and manufacturing, as we saw earlier, you know, has a, makes a big con contribution to our GVA. So again, if that were to be impacted, particularly even by disruption to supply chains, you know, again, that's a major impact to the economy. Um, so you know, the, the, the impact hasn't been uniform. As I said, we, there are some sectors that have been protected, but in Northern Ireland, the sectors that have typically been most protected are the ones um, that don't contribute 
you know more to our to our output or to our our GVA, um, and the ones that do contribute more have been most heavily impacted. Thanks, Karen. So yeah, so I think very clearly there the impact of COVID hasn't been uniform across mm -hmm. the economy. Um, there are some sectors who have done quite well, but really the structure of the Northern Ireland economy, as you said, the the protected sectors, the sectors that might have been able to work from home quite easily, they are they are not as significant to the economy as the sectors that have yeah. had to go go in go in go into shutdown, um, and so we, you know, we've seen fall, falls in output, and we'll see that further as as time goes on. Um, turning now to think about how governments are going to are responding to the economic shock of COVID. So how are governments addressing this 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 huge impact on their economies? Starting with with John across the world, what strategies are governments using to mitigate the impact of COVID? So. First of all, we really need to think about what, what's the goal of government policy. And I think the goal of government policy, if I had to, to sum it up, is twofold. First of all, it's to make sure, particularly in democracies, to make sure that, that businesses and citizens have incentives to comply with the lockdown. Okay, so if you don't give people incentives, the only other way that you can enforce the lockdown is through very draconian uh, means, as we, as we saw in, in China. Uh, the second part of the goal of government policy has been to provide sort of temporary uh, support to workers and firms to see them through the shutdown uh, so that you know uh, we haven't dismantled uh, all our economic infrastructure in, in the three or four months of shutdown and that, that we're ready to go again uh, as soon as the economy restarts, as soon as lockdowns lift it. So what does that, what does that look like uh, across different countries? Well, uh, in terms of fiscal policy, you, you've already sort of alluded to this, Anne. Uh, you know, we've had property tax holidays, we've had VAT deferments, uh, you know, indirect tax deferments around the world. We've had direct grants uh, made to small firms in some countries. Other countries, we've 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 essentially bailed out uh, important sectors. So think airlines. Um, then there's been the loan scheme that's been implemented in, in different economies. This is like you know, government uh, assured uh, loans that banks make to basically keep uh, tied firms over during uh, this period where there's little cash flow coming into to their businesses. Um, you know, Karen's mentioned of furlough schemes. Uh, again, those have been employed across the globe. Uh, depends on the country's labour market, how flexible that labour market is and how dynamic their economy is, whether they've used furlough schemes or not. So the United States, for example, hasn't really uh, used furlough schemes. It's gone for, it's just expanded its unemployment payment. So, you know, it's giving people an extra $600 per week uh, of unemployment benefit. Uh, it's given tax rebates to its citizens. So it's, it's trying to manage it in a different way. So you see the, the unemployment numbers in the United States, they, they jump, they've jumped way up, but the government's getting money to people uh, through, through, through other routes. Um, then the interesting side f for me in particular is, is, is on, on the monetary policy side. So we've pushed uh, interest rates around the world basically close to zero. Uh, we, we have never seen this. So the Bank of England is the oldest central bank, it's been around 1694. Its interest rates have never been lower than the 0.1% that they're sitting at today. Uh, and so we've pushed interest rates down again to help, to encourage, to stimulate credit and to, to help people through, uh, help firms uh, th through this. We've also had uh, this quantitative easing. So this is where the central banks around the world go out onto financial markets. They buy up 
government bonds largely, but they also buy up corporate bonds uh, and other financial assets. The whole goal of this, uh, well, the purported goal of this is to, to keep long-term interest rates down and again, to, to help uh, make sure that funds are flowing through to businesses uh, who need them. It also helps governments who are issuing lots of debt at the minute uh, to, to make sure that they can continue to, to issue their debt. And finally, there have been, uh, I suppose, central banks have made sort of emergency uh, provisions to, you know, to governments to help uh, fund governments uh, with emergency finance. This is, this is why central banks are set up. Uh, so the Bank of England was purely set up to uh, help the government at the time uh, you know, finance uh, emergencies. And that's what central banks do. And that's what central banks around the globe have been doing. Okay, so, so governments have, have varied in their, their approaches, although most have taken significant action to keep people in jobs and prevent the collapse of businesses. Um, and then there's the bigger and the longer term challenge of supporting the economy in the recovery phase. And you started talking about that when you were talking about the uh, monetary policy uh, decisions that have been made there. Turning to look at the Northern Ireland executives approach, um, Graham, how would you describe the Northern Ireland executives' economic policies before COVID, and how has its approach to COVID been similar to what it's done before or different? Okay, so what I'll do is I'll survey um, the general trend in pre-COVID policy, and then I'll address how it's respond, uh, responded to COVID. So I think in terms of before COVID, roughly since 2007 eight, there's been an emerging consensus in a variety of documents on the direction of travel of economic policy in Northern Ireland, for good or ill, as I'll, I'll outline. Um, there have been a number of documents like the Treasury uh, report on rebalancing 2011 and de the debt reports earlier on. Um, and really what these reports all suggest is redirecting economic policy in Northern Ireland towards rebalancing and rebuilding. Rebuilding has been about stimulating the economy after the great financial crisis 2007-2008 and rebalancing has been an issue about a recognition about the inadequacy of innovation that Karen's talked about and the large size of the public sector. So some of the good features of this uh, direction of travel has been there's been a recognition in the role of FDI in job creation uh, that's been part of the direction of policy. There's also been a, a recognition of productivity and the links of poor physical capital, infrastructure, as well as educational problems, human capital type problems. Um, but in addition, there's been a recognition that the public spending reliance of the Northern Ireland economy that stabilised the Northern Ireland economy in the early 1990s. So the Northern Ireland economy actually had quite a good recession in the early 1990s. But that was a mixed blessing. Uh, there's been a recognition of that. So that, that has led to a focus on trying to rebalance the economy away from that uh, reliance. And then lastly and not leastly, I think another favourable feature has been a recognition that even within Northern Ireland, there's massive sub-regional differences in economic performance. Just to give one example, if you look at all the 178 councils of the UK, uh, in GVA terms, you see that Belfast actually is one of the 10 best performing in GVA terms in the whole UK. But what's called North Northern Ireland, which essentially is running from Limavady uh, uh, round to Straban, that's one of the bottom five GVA terms in the, in the UK. 
So there's a massive sub-regional difference in Northern Ireland in terms of output. These are all to the good, but I think there have been other features about uh, about economic policy that haven't been so favourable in, in the direction of travel about the Northern Ireland executive. I think there's been a failure to recognise that it's not enough to talk about the creation of new businesses. You also have to recognise about how you're going to react to the destruction of old businesses. And I think this has been a problem. I also think excessive focus upon a very uh, simplistic idea about crowding out and rebalancing uh, has been there in policy. And I also think there's been excessive reliance on the idea of corporation tax as a silver bullet. So I think the direction of travel has broadly been favourable within economic policy making in the last decade. But I think um, that certainly has been the case that there are problems that, that remain within it. And Graham, what would you say about the uh, response that the executive has put in place so far, either through the lockdown period in terms of the support they've given to firms or indeed the more recent publication, I think just um, yesterday on rebuilding a stronger economy from the Department for the Economy? Yeah, well, I mean, the firstly, in terms of the Northern Ireland executive, two points. The first point is that the furlough and those main strategies have been driven from Whitehall. Indeed, Northern Ireland executive really wasn't involved in a lot of the discussions by all accounts. The second point is that the Northern Ireland executive's focus has been very much, until the last few weeks, been very much health focused. Uh, but having said all that, with the the report that you, you referred to that was released yesterday, they're very much now a recognition of the direction of travel I was talking about earlier on in the last decade. There's a recognition that Northern Ireland has what they say three problems. One is too few high paid jobs that that's connected to productivity in that report. Secondly, there's an issue of a skills gap, which again that report is going to link to qualif- links to qualifications and educational imbalances and last and not least the point I was making earlier on about a recognition of sub-regional problems in the Northern Ireland economy uh, and that it links to infrastructure problems so that this direction of travel in many ways COVID hasn't led to a new strategy in many ways it's accelerated an existing trend or a direction of travel in economic policy making in the last uh, decade. Okay, thanks, Graham. Moving um, straight on then to Karen. Um, how should the executive's policy response recognise the different sectoral impacts on the Northern Ireland economy that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, so I think this is really about building up an evidence base from a range of sources. So in terms of different sectors, different size of firms and sub-regionally across Northern Ireland to get a sense of where the intervention, further interventions are most required and what would have the, the most impact. Um, you know, a lot has already been spent in terms of the interventions that were previously mentioned. Um, so going forward, it's really about, you know, if there, there's going to be a finite resource in terms of future um, spend. So where is your pound of public money best spent and how, how can you best intervene to get the most impact? 
Um, now we've we've already heard you know different sectors have been impacted in different ways, and no doubt you know each sector will have its own challenges. Um, but you, there's a danger that if you try to help everyone and you actually dilute how effective you can be. So there's a danger by trying to help everyone, you effectively don't really help anyone because you can't, you, you know, the, the impact isn't effective. Um, so just in terms of the evidence base, I know that a lot of the sectors and business bodies are doing their own surveys to try and get a sense of as we move into the sort of reopening of the economy, what are the next set of challenges? Because initially it was really all about that cash flow issue and maintaining liquidity. Um, as we move into sort of the recovery phase, um, there will, will again be different challenges for each of the sectors. So as I said before, for some it will be about reduced consumption, for others it might be more of an issue around supply chains. Um, and again, maybe for hospitality, it's more around how do you um, operate viably and also maintain social distancing. So there will be different challenges um, and no doubt there will be further requirements for financial help. Um, but also there, you know, it might be a case of relaxation, relaxing some of the regulations that we currently have. So there's already been talk, for example, of allowing cafes and bars to operate, you know, have seating out in the street. Um, so that in itself, you know, that's just about removing some of the barriers by looking at the regulations you have. So I think the policy response is, you know, getting that evidence, taking a view as to where you can most effectively intervene with the limited resources that we will most likely have. Okay, great. Um, so a real call there to look at the look at the evidence and be smart about focusing mm -hmm. the support where it's where it's most needed and not to dilute yeah. uh, whatever support there is so that it's the, so that the jam is spread too thinly, I suppose, and doesn't actually isn't actually effective. Um, and, and I think a really interesting point there everything the uh, or a large amount of what, what the government has done so far has been about financial support to help in the emergency situation of um, challenges to cash flow and liquidity but actually there are other ways to think about governments taking steps that aren't about spending necessarily like relaxing regulation um so that that all leads on to my to my final question for for all of you actually this time so um, probably starting with John and then moving on to um, Karen and Graham. So there's a lot of conversation in different contexts about how COVID is a disruptive event that actually provides an opportunity to do things differently in the future. What opportunities do you think the Northern Ireland Executive has now to take forward a new kind of economic strategy? So, starting uh, with John. Yeah, I, I'm glad you're going with me first, Anne, because I, I'm maybe going to be slightly more controversial, I, I think, than, than maybe Graham or, or, or Karen, because you're right, crises can trigger uh, change, either it necessitates change or it can be used to convince citizens and politicians that change is, is, is needed. I, I think the elephant in the room in terms of the Northern Ireland economy is our uh, political institutions are no longer fit for purpose. They played a very useful role in 1998 in terms of bringing us out of the troubles, uh, but we no longer have political institutions that function because one of the two large parties can walk away if they don't get their way. 
uh, and we've got a lot of political uncertainty and evidence from around the world shows that uncertainty is not good for economic development. It, it hinders entrepreneurship, it hinders businesses coming to the province and so that, that for me is the thing that really needs to be uh, 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 addressed. Second thing, one of the, one of the lessons of, of history is, is that when you come out of recessions, one of the ways to help an economy do that is to invest heavily in infrastructure. Now, don't, don't worry, I'm not going to suggest that we build a bridge between, uh, between Northern Ireland and Scotland, but, but here's something that we should think of. A high-speed rail network, a uh, rail line between Belfast and Dublin via Dublin Airport. Before, before COVID, uh, uh, I, I think the figures were close to 1 billion flights, sorry, 1 million flights out of Dublin Airport were people living in Northern Ireland per year, per annum. Uh, you know, so that, that for me would transform uh, the economy because we know again when, with infrastructure, it's not just the money we spend on the infrastructure, it's, it's what we call the agglomeration economies that come from it, the ability for people to move around the, the country very quickly and to do business. Uh, I, I think that would be transformative. Um, and the third thing then, uh, and, and maybe Karen and Graham will come on to this, is the need to really, we, we have, we have a, in, in some sense, a brilliant educational system in, in Northern Ireland, uh, but in another sense, we, we don't. Uh, so, for example, uh, the Republic of Ireland, I think the figures are roughly 5% of uh, school leavers in the Republic of Ireland leave the Republic of Ireland to go to higher education. Uh, whereas in Northern Ireland it's 33%. And then we can work our way down through the system. We've got three school systems, which I'm, I'm sorry, uh, as an economist looking at this, that's bonkers. Uh, what, what, what a lot of inefficiencies uh, and it embeds sectarianism, etc. In, in our economy. Uh, so I think that's something that, that really, this is an opportunity now to do something about this. Uh, and finally, I think one of our comparative advantages, I think, as, a, as an economy, as a, as a country, is, is our social capital. We've got a lot of social capital in Northern Ireland, and we need to make sure that government policy, and economists don't talk much about social capital, but it's really important in terms of building a strong society and building a strong economy. We need to make sure that our policies in Northern Ireland promote civic institutions, promote strong families, promote strong societies. Uh, so those are the kind of the, the left field radical uh, suggestions that I, I would have if we, you know, this crisis is going to do anything, these are the things we need to be thinking about. Thanks, John. I think those are really um, challenging ideas, yeah, that, that this is a disruptive event and let's do things differently as a result. Um, moving on to Graham, what are your thoughts? Okay, uh, well, I, I, I tend to agree with what John said, but uh, I think there are general trends in terms of trends in the world economy. I think, um, you know, I don't think we're going to see the death of distance now, but I think we're going to see the relaxation of distance. So I think that means that we've got to redirect policy in terms of uh, office space and such like that's that's something to think about and of course that ties into specifically infrastructure uh, and infrastructure is broadly I would agree with John totally I think infrastructure we should think about in physical terms so in other words the digital uh, trend that is definitely going to be a major feature in the Northern Ireland economy going forward the transport infrastructure is part of physical capital I would say I, I totally agree with that terms of human capital, yeah, there, I mean, there are major problems in the education system. Don't get me started about it. Um, but, and obviously we need, at both the high end and the low end, uh, we've got far too many people without qualifications, uh, which is a big problem in the economy John's talked about. 
But I also think there's a problem about at that at that high end that goes with qualifications. I'm not entirely convinced that there isn't an awful lot of gaming that goes on in the education system that reduces the actual value uh, that you can actually add in the education system. And last but not least, I totally agree about social capital. Um, we, we are going to face a problem, I think, down the road very soon in the healthcare system of our waiting list problem, which I think is going to reemerge very quickly. Uh, those issues about social um, issues, about preschool education, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all sorts of issues that arise. And last but not leastly, I think we have to face the fact that in a post-Brexit world, the benefits that the European Union gave to the UK and Northern Ireland economy in terms of promoting uh, competition and productivity, that tug of war benefit, as it were, as it were, that was offered by the European uh, membership is gone now. So we've got to find a replacement to these uh, the European Union membership. And what is that? Well, it's to promote things like productivity, innovation, competition. Uh, and that's easier said than done. What I'm afraid post-COVID, a lot of people are going to use COVID as a, a veneer to promote entry barriers and reduction in competition. So I think we need to be vigilant. Um, and that would be my last, uh, my last suggestion. Okay, thank you, Graham. Um, Karen, what, what do you think the Northern Ireland Executive should do differently, a new kind of economic strategy going forward? Yeah, so I would again agree with a lot of um, what John and Graham have said and actually just in terms of John's point about the, the high speed rail between Belfast and Dublin, I'd also suggest that that be extended west of the ban. Um, you know, the rail links there are, you know, the same as they've been, you know, since I was coming up to university 20 years ago, you know, it hasn't improved in that time. Um, and I think that would really help with the connectivity and actually the, the regional balancing of the economy. Um, agree as well in terms of the education. Um, you know, we do, there are some really good points about our education system, but yes, we don't, we have too many people who are leaving without qualifications. Um, and in this, you know, that one of the main impacts on of this COVID has been a huge increase in the claimant count. And there's um, evidence that young people will be particularly impacted. So again, you know, upskilling and reskilling um, will become ever more important. Um, I think in terms of, um, this being a disruptive event. I think we also need to think about this in the context of, you know, Brexit is just around the corner. We are currently in the middle of a climate change and all the sort of all that that brings with it. Um, and we still have our long-standing structural problems in Northern Ireland that we've had, you know, as Graham mentioned, the productivity, um, the low R&D, the low um, levels of entrepreneurship innovation and so on. Um, so I think, you know, it's a, now is a good time to kind of bring some fresh ideas as to how we address that. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, you know, I really do think a lot of this, the starting point for a lot of this is the education system. Um, even just in terms of that, um, wearing my entrepreneurship hat, um, you know, bringing that in at a, at a very young level, you know, the, allowing people to, allowing young 
um, even primary school students to get engaged in activities which would increase their creativity and entrepreneurship um, increasing that mindset you know that will have in the long term that will kind of pay off because it you're you, you're bringing that in to sort of be part of the culture um, and I think that's what been the problem in the past that we haven't really had that mindset um, so yeah, um, I agree with a lot of what else has been said and I think the strategy document that was released yesterday that you mentioned, I think there were some good signs there that some sort of fresh ideas are and fresh thinking around how we grow the economy. Um, it's a good starting point. Okay, thank you Karen. Um, I think what I'm hearing from that is a very strong message is that the previous economic and social issues that we have in Northern Ireland are, are still there and still need to be addressed um, and indeed uh, will be worse in some ways after COVID. So thinking about the low levels of skills that's particularly going to impact on um, uh, our as people can't come out of jobs and need to reskill, we need to be in a situation or in a position where we can encourage people through reskilling into different jobs and um, thinking about the impact on, on young people who may not have the opportunities that, that previous cohorts would have had. Um, and, it, and someone mentioned along the way the health waiting list, which is a huge issue. You know, the health service has responded really well to COVID, but actually uh, the, the waiting lists, which are off the scale compared to other parts of the UK, are getting worse daily. Um, there was a, a, a clear there from at least two of you about um, infrastructure spend and, and really being positive and ambitious about that, for example, through a high, high speed rail link to between Belfast and Dublin and possibly to the west as well. Um, I think to try and pull some of the, the themes that we've talked about together just as we finish now, um, obviously we've heard how we can expect to see huge changes in the global economy as a result of COVID, the OECD's forecast of a 7.6% fall in GDP this year, um, alongside other political changes happening at the same time, which may mean more tension between nations, um, perhaps leading to reductions in global trade. And while that's not good for economic efficiency, it could lead to some new opportunities, like more sourcing of, local, of services and goods locally and more local tourism. Um, we can expect to see governments be continuing to be very active in supporting their economies to survive the impact of COVID. And we've, we've seen that clearly in the UK so far and locally with the Northern Ireland executive's response. Um, thinking about the outlook for Northern Ireland, um, sadly, we've, we've come to quite a, a, a pessimistic conclusion. It's not a very positive outlook. There are underlying weaknesses in our skills base and productivity, which suggest our economy may not have the resilience to bounce back quickly and what Karen told us about the sectoral makeup of the Northern Ireland economy would underline that. Um, so the executive will need to be active to support sectors hit with the temporary impact of COVID, but it also needs to be much more strategic and intentional in addressing the long-term economic weaknesses that far predate COVID. Um, future recovery and economic growth in Northern Ireland relies on seriously addressing our historic weaknesses in terms of lack of skills, low productivity and economic inactivity. And we talked a bit about how the Department for the Economy's Rebuilding a Strong Economy document is welcome in its recognition of some of those issues about, um, about skills and opportunities. 
to end on a positive note, COVID does also in some ways represent an opportunity to consider some bigger issues. It is a disruptive event um, and it's an opportunity to think differently about them. So this may be the time for a more ambitious economic strategy for Northern Ireland that sets out a long-term vision for growth and puts in place sustained and effective steps towards that vision. So that, that rounds off our podcast on the economic impact of COVID-19 in Northern Ireland. A big thank you to our panel members, Professor John Turner, Dr. Graham Brownlow and Dr. Karen Bonner. It's been great, really interesting to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, do watch out for our second podcast in this series from Queen's and Pivotal, where we'll be discussing the challenges facing leaders during the COVID-19 crisis. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.